Well, uh, a common saying in our culture is that blood is thicker than water. Have you heard that before? Blood is thicker than water. Maybe this is new to some of the children among us. I'm not exactly sure, but when people say this, they're referring to the, the faithfulness that people have for their own relatives, which is deeper and stronger than their faithfulness they would have for their friends. Friends come and go, but like it or not, you're stuck with your family. And uh, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a difficult thing, but you can't change your parents, you can't change your siblings, they're all going to be there. And one of the results of this is that um, relatives often show up to help in time of difficulty. Uh, When a sister has a baby, you will fly across country to help her in those early days. Right, Yvonne? And when your brother is sick, you'll go and visit him often. Right, Phil? That's right. And uh, when your parents become weak and feeble, you may well bring them into your homes to nurse them yourself in those last days. These things are true in general. They're not true in every circumstance. But generally, because they're your relatives and because blood is thicker than water, our natural tendency of all of us is to be faithful to our family. Now, the Bible acknowledges this. The Bible acknowledges that blood is thicker than water. But it's interesting that the Bible acknowledges this and then takes it deeper to show that there's an even deeper bond than family relationships. Proverbs 18.24 says this, There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. These words, Solomon is acknowledging the fact that, that, that a brother is faithful. But there are instances where a friend comes along and the faithfulness of the friend even exceeds that of a brother. I remember golfing, I think it was last summer, and uh, was, was along with two guys on the round. And uh, in the course of conversations I was talking to them, they told me how far back they go. We've been friends 30 or 40 years, and we golf every, whatever it was, I forget, Tuesday at 3.30. We're right here. In fact, if you want to golf with us again next week, you come back. Tuesday, 3.30, we'll golf here. Same golf course, same place, every time, all week long, all summer long. And I remember one time there was a, another guy, one of these was off, I'm not sure, getting a drink or something, and I was talking to his friend, and he said, we're, you know, we're like brothers, said, we really are. We get along well. And, and he said, we would do anything for each other. And then he started to tear up. He said, you know what? I would give my kidney for him if it meant to help him. There's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's what Solomon was saying. And, and Jesus said the same thing. Maybe you remember the time when Jesus was speaking to, his crowd, to a crowd and a brother's sister outside and wanted to speak with Jesus. And um, they said, behold, your brother and brothers are here, right? The idea is if they are family, they should be able to be ushered up right up to front because blood is thicker than water. And Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and brothers, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. See, the Bible acknowledges that that blood is thicker than water, but the Bible goes further than that to say there are some instances where some water is thicker than blood. Jesus was saying the bond of those in the kingdom of heaven are stronger than those of the bond of the family. And elsewhere, Jesus demonstrated this. He says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a, a sword. 
For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are the members of his household, right? And, and, and the household ought not to be mem- enemies, right? They ought to be faithful to one another. But Jesus said, there is a, a faithfulness that comes to me that supersedes even a faithfulness towards a family. And that's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. We are a band of brothers and a band of sisters Our intention is to do life together. By faith in Christ, we become children of the King of Kings. As 1 John 3, verse 2 says, we are children of God. And it's a new family we enter into. And thus, we become united to Him in this new family. And there ought to be a bond among us that stands the test of the severest of difficulties. And God has called us to live and function together as a church. And there's a way that we ought to treat one another and love one another and serve one another. I read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 because we're identified as a body. All of us have different roles, different functions, but we are all work together for the common good. To obtain this common good, elsewhere in Scripture it says we ought to regard others as more important than ourselves. We're called not to look just for our own interests, but also to the interests of others. We're called to fervently love one another from the heart. And as these things take place... God is honored and the church prospers. Listen to what Jesus said in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. There's the extent, as I have loved you, as Jesus loved the disciples. And how did He love them? Love them perfectly until the end. John 13, verse 1 says, and He says, by this, all men will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. And see, when there's genuine corporate community among us, and when there's genuine love demonstrated among us, and when we regard others as more important than ourselves, and we look out for each other's interests and not for our own, when each of us fulfill God's given role in the body, it will be obvious to the world that God is among us. The world will know that we're followers of Christ. The church will be glorious. God will be exalted above all things. But, but here's, here's the comfort. As we fail in these things, the church fails too. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. In our exposition, we've reached up to chapter 2, verse 10. We find Israel being unfaithful in their relationships with their brothers and sisters around them. The nation of Israel was failing in their faithfulness towards each other. They were failing to keep their commitments toward one another. They were failing to act um, right towards one another. They were acting treacherously towards one another. They were faithless toward one another. They were failing each other. They were looking out for their own interests and they were falling in their love towards each other. They were breaking faith. And Malachi says, this ought not to be. You're not being faithful among your relationships among the people. In recent weeks, we've seen Malachi chapter 1, 2 through 5, of how they failed to understand God's love. And thus, they doubted His love and care and concern for them. And then from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, verse 9, we see how they failed to remember God's honor. And it affected their worship. And today, we're going to see how they forgot that they are one people. And it affected their relationships. Rather than striving together, they were biting and devouring one another. And we'll see how that takes place. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Let me read it. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? 
Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And then verse 15, it's the hardest verse to translate. Your version might be totally different than mine. We'll just... We'll just try. But one has done, not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Well, the title of my message this morning is Don't Forget His People. Don't Forget His People. The people of Malachi's day had forgotten that they were the, the people of God. God had brought them miraculously out of the exile from Babylon, had done some incredible things to, to change the heart of a king and to bring them back into Jerusalem to, to provide governmental Persian funding to build the wall, to build the temple, to establish a city again. God's miraculous dealings with them. Call them back to be a holy people. Call them back to be a light for the nations to behold. But such was far from the case. Instead of remaining faithful to one another, they were treacherous with one another. And what makes this particularly horrifying this morning in our text is that they were blood and water. Right? You understand what I'm saying? They were blood in the sense that they were all Jews and bound together with family. But they were also water in the sense that they were, were bound by covenant as well with God. They were the people of God. They were the people that God had selected. God had promised, I will be their God and they will be my people. They should have been not only blood relatives, but they should have even taken that next step, as Jesus said, and been more faithful among the people of God than just blood and family. And that's the situation here. It's a very condemning passage. And uh, as we've been learning from Malachi, we need to learn from their negative example. They'd forgotten that they were the people of God. And by their actions, they betrayed their own people. And so the flip side of that is we too today, we can't forget. We're part of the people of God. We need to treat one another rightly and appropriately. My first point is this. Don't break the bond of community. Don't break the bond of community. Verse 10 contains three questions. Often it's the case in Scripture when you have questions, they're often getting at a point, and these are, these are the same. Look at verse 10. It says, Do we not all have one Father? It's one question. Has not one God created us? There's a second question. Now comes a third. Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Now the relationship of these three questions is the first to set the basis for the third the first two questions are getting at the unity of the people of God. Right? Do we not all have one Father? 
Now, some say this refers to Abraham, right? We're all descended from Abraham. We are Jews. Some say it refers to God, like chapter 1, verse 6 says, I'm a father, where is my honor? There might be some of both in this aspect because he's talking to Jewish people. We have one father. Ultimately, though, as the second question says, we are created by the one God and Father. We are one family. We are the family of God. To Israel, Malachi was saying, we're a unique nation. God Almighty is our Father. He's created us to be His own possession. He's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will be God to you and you will be my people. His covenant with them was an everlasting covenant. You, you just go through the Scriptures. Um, time and time again, references made to this covenant. Remember when the people were enslaved in Egypt and under bondage they cried out to the Lord? The Lord remembered the covenant and He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Even when the people were disobedient, God didn't destroy them for the sake of the covenant that He had made. When Joshua led the people to conquer the promised land, God said, I will never break my covenant with you. Even then in the time of Judges, right? When the people were straying, God never forsook their nation because He made a covenant with them. He made a promise with them. Even when Israel rejected God, demanding a king, still the Lord was faithful. The Lord told Samuel to anoint Saul as king. I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Even though their cry was sinful and wrong and rejecting of God, God still with this covenant had regard for His people. When David brought the ark into Jerusalem, he said, God, You've remembered Your covenant forever. Even in Babylonian exile, the Lord remained faithful to His covenant. His great prayer of confession, Nehemiah 9, after they're in the land... Nehemiah prays this, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness. God was a faithful covenantal God, right? That's what it is. Do we not have one Father? He's created all of us and He's been gracious to us and kind. The people of Malachi could have said, of course we have one Father. He created all of us, right? Of course He's been faithful to us. Look around. You can see the evidence all over. See that wall? That's an evidence of God's faithfulness to us. See the fact that we have this temple now? That's an evidence of God's faithfulness to His covenant people. See the fact that people are living here? We have houses in which to dwell. We are living in His city where He has chosen to set His name. That is an evidence of the faithfulness and the kindness of God. Do we not have one Father? Has not God created us? Of course we do. And then comes the rebuke. Here's rebuke. Why do you deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Dealing treacherously. In other words, God's been so faithful to us. How can we be so faithless to others? He's brought us back in the land. He gives us a city, gives us a houses, gives us a temple, reinstituted sacrifices. If God has been so faithful to His promises, why have we failed in our promises to our fellow Israelites? Like We're dealing on a human level today. Why have we been so faithless in that? Why have we been so reckless? Why have we not kept our word with one another? You can see here in verse 10 that the key word here throughout the entire passage is the word deal treacherously. You can see that there in the New American Standard, deal treacherously. It comes up five times. It's in verse 10. Also look at verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously. It comes up in 
Verse 14, you have dealt treacherously. Comes up in verse 15, let no one deal treacherously. At the end of verse 16, do not deal treacherously. Now, depending upon your translation, that word, it's the Hebrew word bagad, which just means like deal treacherously. It means to be faithless, to break faith, to be unfaithful. Right? The ESV uses the word faithless. Right? Look at verse 10 if you have the ESV. Why then are we faithless to one another? Verse 11, Judah has become faithless. Verse 14, you've been faithless. Verse 15, let none be faithless. Verse 16, do not be faithless. The NIV says that you've broken faith. Right? If you have an NIV in your lap. Verse 10, why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. Verse 14, you have broken faith. Verse 15, do not break faith. Verse 16, do not break faith. And I think from these verses, you really get an idea what this word means. It means the people of Israel were failing in their part among the covenantal community. Right? Verse 11 we see. Verse 10 again we see. Right? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Their actions weren't consistent with their heavenly calling. And I simply say this, that just as Israel should have dealt appropriately with each other, so also should the church deal appropriately with each other. The application comes straight into the church. Oh, we may not be blood relatives of each other. We may not be able to trace our family lineage all the way back to Abraham. But this admonition here calls us to have a certain behavior among us. Our actions toward one another needs to be driven by the bond that our common faith has produced. In the words of verse 10, we shouldn't deal treacherously with one another, right? We should be faithful towards one another. We should serve one another. We should see another in need and help that person in need. We should see another hurting and feel the pain with them. If it goes well with others, we should with them rather than being jealous, like is so often the case. We should keep our promises to one another. We should be faithful to one another. God has formed us to be a body that genuinely cares for one another. As you fail in your relationship with the church, you fail in the community. So don't break the bond of community. Keep it strong. Keep it strong. Don't deal treacherously. Don't deal faithlessly. Don't break faith with each other in the body. You know, there's an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's talking about food sacrifice to idols. He says, right, if food is set before you, go ahead and eat it. Right? We know there's no such thing as an idol. Go ahead and eat it. But if another brother comes along and says, oh, did you know that food was sacrificed to idols? And his conscience, if you eat, though you can't eat, you're free to eat. If you eat, his conscience will be hurt. And what does Paul say? You stick with your friend and you say, um, no, thank you. I won't have that food. You offend the non-believer outside the body so as to protect the believer with inside the body. That's how we need to do, right? We need to don't break the bond of community, but build it up. That's what we're called to do. Well, let's look at my second point this morning, verses 11 and 12. Don't make the bond of lawlessness. Don't make the bond of lawlessness. See, one of the ways in which Israel had failed to maintain the bond of community was in their marriage practices. Judah, verse 11 says, has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. 
For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord in which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. It's clear here. Malachi is talking here about the practice of the Jews marrying non-Jews. Israel had been warned over and over and over and over again not to let this happen. And the reason why is because marrying foreign women would lead the Israelites to worship their gods. And foreign women worshipped idols would lead the Israelites to worship idols, bring God's wrath upon them, and you never want to be the object of God's wrath. It's not where you want to be. Warnings exist in the Scriptures. Exodus 34 says, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Right? The going into the land. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you are going, or it become a snare in your midst. Right? Don't, don't covenant with them. It will become a snare. But rather, you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their ashrams. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, if you don't tear these things down, you'll make a covenant with the inhabitants of a land, and they would play the harlot with the gods and sacrifice their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Don't marry because it's bad for you. Don't marry outside the covenant because it's going to be your doom. Deuteronomy 7, verse 4 says, If you do that, if you take daughters for their sons, you take daughters for your sons, they will turn your sons away from following me to serve after other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and He will quickly destroy you. Yet despite these warnings, the people of Israel took foreign wives for themselves. How typical of the people of God, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, right? And they wandered. And that's the testimony of all the Old Testament. It's that people wander. The message of the Old Testament also is that He's gracious to those who come back. It's the message of the Bible. God, God looks favorably upon those who trust Him, repent, and they turn from their sins and they see Him. But Israel forsook the clear commandment of God. You can read Ezra and Nehemiah, both contemporaries of Malachi. They both refer to this practice. Ezra 9 talks about it. Nehemiah 13, though, I want to I want to read this for you. It gives some historical details because it shows you the, the passion of Nehemiah, what took place. Nehemiah 13, beginning in verse 23. In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was ever able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So catch it, right? What's happening is they're marrying. They've gone back and now they're marrying these people. And the children can't even keep the Hebrew language anymore. They can't talk it. So they're going to lose the heritage. And Nehemiah was fuming. He said, I contended with them and I cursed them and I struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. He could picture them grabbing someone's hair and he made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Don't do this. God's told us not to do this. It's going to be a snare to you. Cursing the Israelites, pulling out their hair, making them mouth the words of promise never to give their children away to foreign gods. 
Because the reality of such a choice is that it's bad for them. In fact, listen to what Nehemiah did in his logic. Nehemiah continues in verse 26 of Nehemiah 13. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Because we know that Solomon sinned. He started marrying foreign gods. You know what happened to his heart after he started marrying foreign gods, right? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. The one whom God had gave, mercy, uh, gave wisdom like nobody ever had before, and like nobody, there'd be nobody ever as smart as Solomon was, or as wise as Solomon was. And yet, even Solomon, his foreign women caused to sin. And then Nehemiah continues, Do we then hear about you that you've committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women? And then he even says there's a priest, the high priest, his grandson married a daughter of a foreign wife. It, this place is going to pieces, is what he was saying. You guys are transgressing the Lord. And the Lord hated what was taking place. That's what the, verse, what the word abomination is about there in verse 11. It's an abomination. God was angry what was taking place. In verse 12, we see the Lord's curse come upon all the ungodly. All those who were guilty. He said, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from his tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents the offering to the Lord of hosts. God wants to see these people removed from the covenant community. May they not come up again to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Let's get them out of here. shows how terrible the Lord considered the sin. If people are going to sin so blatantly, the Lord doesn't want them to feign worship before Him. Right? We've seen this before in Malachi, right? Chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, that someone would shut the gates that fire not, might not be uselessly kindled on my altar. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, I want to cut these people off, these sinning priests. And now He expresses His heart, the sinning member of the covenant community who is mixing with foreign women. Let's cut them off from the tent of meeting because of His lawlessness. And really, that's the application that comes right here. Don't make the bond of lawlessness. Israel was trying to marry. Israel was marrying outside the covenant community and God said that's wrong. And I think the application comes to us. You know what? Christians ought not to marry non-Christians. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. Christians ought not to marry non-Christians. That's what Paul gave application, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership do righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light and darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what is a believer in common with a non-believer? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And then listen to Paul's reasoning here in 2 Corinthians 6. We are the temple of the living God. We Christians, we are the temple of the living God. Kind of taking the Old Testament, right? And bringing that over right to the New. We are like them. We are the temple of God. And just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's a covenant, the, the Abrahamic covenant. I will be with him. I will be their God. I will walk with them. They shall be my people. The people of God in Christ today, like the people of Israel. It's the same reasoning. We need to be faithful to the covenant. 
that God has given to us. Therefore, Paul writes, come out from their midst and be separate. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, just like Malachi. Do we not all have one father? He's going to be a father to us. Let's be pure like he is pure. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Right? Light doesn't have fellowship with darkness. There's nothing in harmony with Christ and Belial. And it makes no sense for a Christian believer to marry an unbeliever. It doesn't make sense. Now, for some of you, it may be too late. I know there's some people in our congregation who are married to unbelievers. And if that's you or you have a friend that's the case like that, I, I simply say this. Be faithful in your marriage. Just be faithful where you are. If you're a woman, seek to win your husband without a word through your chaste and respectable behavior. That's First Peter 3. If your husband... Display Christ's sacrificial love to her and trust the Lord to open her eyes. Be encouraged though. If this is your situation, your presence in that marriage is, has a purifying, sanctifying effect. You're bringing God into the marriage that might not be there otherwise. Listen to 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. It's not salvation, but there is a purifying effect that you bring into your marriage. If you like that. Now, for others of you, it's not too late. Okay, particularly I'm thinking about kids. All right, I'm thinking about you, Melissa, and I'm thinking about you, Amanda, and Alyssa, and Amy. I'm talking to you, Alicia and to you, Conrad, and to you, Malin, I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to um, you, Audrey, and I'm talking to you, Oliver, and I'm talking to you, Michelle, and most of all, I'm talking to you, Jake. (laughs) (laughs) It's not too late. You can resolve in your mind now, I'm not going to marry a non-Christian. Oh, I wish I could tell you the heartache that a marriage to an unbeliever brings in the life of a believing spouse. I've counseled with them and it is difficult. Life becomes difficult. You're not united in your view of life and death. You're not united in your purposes. You're pursuing kingdom purposes and your spouse is pursuing something else. Your, your fellowship is hindered because when you go home, home is not a refuge. Home is a, is a conflict. Your giving is hindered. You can't give to the Lord as freely because there's... Why are we giving to the church, right? Let's buy it. Sunday mornings can be lonely. It's difficult to grow because every time you go home, it's a negative influence. It's pounding and pounding and pounding. And so I say to all of you children, all of you, I long for each of you to marry in the faith for your good. Do you want to have a happy marriage? No, which of you who aren't married want a happy marriage? Alex, do you want one? Okay, just let's see your hand. Stephen, do you want one? Okay, good, good. You want a happy marriage. You want a happy marriage, right? Choose, start by choosing a marriage partner who's following Christ. It's the first and fundamental step to marital bliss. And I'd love for you children just to even, whatever, say now, I'm not going to marry a non-believer. 
And, and parents, don't think it's just the children here being persuaded once in two minutes by a preacher. It starts with you all talking to your children when they're four. And talk to them when they're five. I was talking to Chrissy yesterday. I said, Chrissy, have I ever told you that you should just marry a, a Christian? And Chrissy said, I don't think so, Dad. But then I think we have had conversations, Chris, right? Our conversation yesterday, we have had conversations just about how difficult your life will be if you marry a non-Christian, right? And so we've begun those discussions. We've talked about those discussions, you know, especially sometimes we're praying for people that we know who are in a mixed marriage and how difficult it is. Use those opportunities, parents, to press it upon the kids so they might be saved from heartache. All right, so that's, that's my push. We could go further, but we're not. Don't break the bond of community, verse 10. Don't make the bond of lawlessness, verse 11 and 12. And here it is, my third admonition to you this morning. Don't break the bond of matrimony. Don't break the bond of matrimony. We see here in verse 13, again, this issue of worship coming up. Verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and with groaning, and He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Here are people bringing sacrifices that God rejected. They're trying for their sacrifice to the Lord. They Lord, here's, here's the sacrifice for you. And God was saying, mm, I won't accept that. And the sense here is even they repeatedly came. They came again with the sacrifice and God refused their offering. Even... They were passionate about this. They were moved to tears, weeping and groaning. They were pleading with God, God, please accept my sacrifice. And yet, the Lord remained unmoved. He wouldn't accept an offering from their hands. It's just so often the case in Malachi. The question comes, yet you say, for what reason? Why, God? Why aren't you accepting my offering? Isn't this a good thing? You've commanded me to do this. I'm obeying you, right? And so you bring that up there. You bring it, and God says, no, I'm not going to have it. God, the altar is wet with my tears. Please accept my offering. And God says, I'm not. So why? Here it is. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you've dealt treacherously. And she's the companion of your wife by covenant. In other words, when you and your wife stood before the Lord and spoke forth your marital vows, I was there. I was a witness. I saw what took place. I saw that you promised lifelong fidelity to your Jewish wife. You promised to have her and hold her, to, to love her and keep her, richer for poorer, sickness and in health, as long as you both shall live. And yet, what have you done? You've dealt treacherously with her. She's your wife by covenant. Verse 14 says, but you've broken your covenant with her. You've divorced her. You've failed to honor the covenant of your marriage. And their divorce caused the offering not to be accepted. Verse 15 continues in the same. As I mentioned earlier, it is the most difficult verse to translate it. Um, Much of it has to do with the subject of the verse. The subject is either God or the subject is man. And you know what? I tried to figure out this week. I had my Hebrew text open trying to look at it. And, and I don't know Hebrew well enough. And the translators, which know Hebrew well enough, they're divided too. So I, I don't know what it means. Let me read it for you in both these ways, but it doesn't really matter, okay? Because it gets down to the same thing. But let me read it for you both ways. The New American Standard takes man as a subject. But not one has done so. Not one man has divorced his wife who has a remnant of the Spirit. Right? 
And what did that one do while he was seeking godly offspring, right? In this case, the idea is a faithful remnant of people who didn't divorce their wives. Rather, they're seeking a godly offspring. Now, most of all the other versions I saw, except the New American Standard, take God as the subject. Here's the ESV. Did not God, did not He make them one? Did not God make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Did not God, male and female together, the two become one flesh? And what was God seeking? God was seeking a holy offspring. Right? The idea is that there's two made one in marriage. The purposes of union is a godly marriage, godly generation. Right? Raise up children who would serve and follow me. But regardless of which way it goes, the end is still the same because every translation translates this the right. Verse 15 to the end. Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. That says the same thing. Regardless of whether God, whether man seeking godly offspring, God seeking a godly offspring, whatever, bottom line is, don't break the bond of matrimony. Don't break it. Verse 16, again, continues on the same. Again, there's, there's variation of translation here. And again, you can take it one way, you can take it another way. But in the end, the admonition's the same, right? The NAS says this, I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garments with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. And then at the end, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously, right? Don't break faith because God says, I hate divorce. Now, picture two pieces of paper glued together. Okay, your, your children have been out there, they're doing their art project and they've got the, the piece of paper together and they've got their Elmers out there and it's slopping all together and they come out. Now, what happens when you have to uh, take those pieces of paper apart if you want to? What happens? It's going to happen. It's going to rip and tear. You're just going to, you know, you maybe take a knife in there and it's just going to tear it apart. It is going to rip. And the same is true in marriage. When two people become one, you cannot separate them without some devastating ripping taking place. Leading up to a divorce, there's often times of incredible tension in the home. Husbands and wives fighting with each other, tremendous anger at each other, usually disputes, right? Disappointments. If immorality is involved, the pain is magnified with feelings of inferiority and guilt and shame and sorrow. And a divorce, when it's finally accomplished, takes its toll. It takes its toll financially, takes its toll emotionally, takes its toll spiritually. And all in all, a divorce is a painful experience. You know, Randy Alcorn tells the time when he and a friend one time sat down and they posed this question to each other. He said, what if I committed adultery? What would happen if I committed adultery? Just tried to think through just all the, all the implications of all the things that would happen if he committed adultery. And you can easily apply this to divorce. What would happen if I would divorce my spouse? Here's the adultery. Here's, what Randy, here's Randy's list. And he, he included this in his book. Um, his book back there, The Purity Principle. It's a fabulous little book. Yeah, maybe I'll review that next week in my weekly word. Um, it's a great book about just sexual fidelity. He says this right towards the end. This is only half of his list. He says, Adult, My adultery would drag in the mud the reputation of my Lord. My adultery would make me have to look into his face one day and tell him why I did it. 
My adultery would cause untold hurt to Nancy, my loyal wife and best friend. My adultery would forfeit Nancy's respect and trust. My adultery would permanently injure my credibility with my beloved daughters, Karina and Angie. My adultery would bring shame upon my family. My adultery would inflict hurt on my church and friends, especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. My adultery would bring an irretrievable loss of years of witnessing to relatives and friends. My adultery would bring pleasure to Satan, God's enemy. My adultery would give me a sex, possibly give me a sexually transmitted disease, posing a risk to Nancy. My adultery would lose my self-respect, discredit my name, and evoke lifelong embarrassment to myself. And then he wrote, If we would rehearse in advance the devastating consequences of immorality or divorce or marital infidelity, whatever, we would be far less prone to commit it. Well, God says He hates it. So I look out among you. I do see a handful of you that have been divorced. And... um, I think that each and every one of you, I know I've talked to you enough, I, you could come up here and stand right here behind this pulpit and give testimony of the awfulness of divorce, the misery of divorce that has caused you. I think you could. And so I hardly need to convince you this morning that God hates divorce. All right? To be sure, the Lord does allow divorce in several circumstances. Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19.9 give opportunity for divorce in the case of adultery. Moses permitted divorce because of hardness of heart. But from the beginning of creation, God designed one man with one woman forming a strong union for life. That's what he's done. That's what marriage is. And he hates it when, he, when that gets torn apart. And I just say as a pastor, I will always, always, always counsel reconciliation. Always will. I'll counsel reconciliation after I counsel reconciliation, counsel reconciliation until there is absolutely no possibility of return. It's got to be clear for all to see that reconciliation is impossible, but until then, I will counsel reconciliation because God hates divorce. And it damages people. And it's far better to see reconciliation in marriage than to experience divorce. And so for your good and for people who come to counsel me, that's what I'm going to counsel because I want their good. Well, if you have had a divorce, if you had to have some marital infidelity in the past or whatever, you might be feeling this morning some tremendous guilt because I've been preaching the wrong. Maybe God has brought to remembrance some of your old sins and it may be hurtful now. Perhaps even the words of this prophet have sunk deep into your soul. I have an unbelieving spouse. Does God want to cut me off from His people? Verse 12. I have divorced in my past. Will God accept my worship today? Verses 13 and 14. I have a past filled with sexual immorality. I have been unfaithful in my marriage. Does does God accept me or not? Well, be thankful today that you're living today after the cross. It may just be the case that your unfaithfulness in your marriage gives God every reason to cut you off. 
But right here is the glory of the cross. You can say, you know what? I've messed up. My sins are huge. And I deserve to be cast off. I deserve, verse 12, to be cut off from among your people. I deserve to wet God's altar with tears and cry and have God say, I'm not going to accept your worship. That's what I deserve. And yet the truth of the Gospel is this, that in Christ Jesus there can be full reconciliation. You remember 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17? Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Do you remember that? He came into the world to save sinners. And those of you who've had some marital difficulties, strife, divorce, unfaithfulness, unbelieving spot, those are the kind of sinners He came to save. And lest you say, oh, but my sin, my sin is way too bad. If you only knew how bad my sin was. If you only knew how bad it was. Well, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said, among whom I am the foremost. That's what he says. He says, I'm the foremost of sinners. And, and Paul was a, a pretty big sinner. And the idea there isn't so much to say, well, your sin is bad. It wasn't as bad as Paul's. Well, it is. He's saying that, listen, I'm a, I'm a great sinner. Christ Jesus came and saved me and gave me this ministry. Who are you to think that your sin is so big you can't bring you in and save you as well? And so if today you're feeling guilt about your past, I just say, you know what? Plead mercy at the cross of Christ because Christ Jesus died for sins just like you have committed. Well, the thing, though, that makes divorce so especially difficult is it affects far more people than husband and wife. Children are affected by divorce of parents. Right? The go between family and family and mother and dad and they're vying for their approval. Extended family is affected by divorce. Who's invited? Who's not? Who comes to the wedding? Who... Who comes to this? Who comes to that? Family relationships are strained. Is he in the family or is he out of the family? What's exactly right here? It affects the church, though. And that's the point of our text. Even when others are looking to people in the church as models of godliness and then marriage crumbles, it's disheartening to the people. Right? We rejoice with those who rejoice, but when the marriage strife comes, we weep with those who weep. And when it ends in divorce, it's tragic for us. We feel the flesh ripping our skin when others in the body are going through divorce. We can't, we can't, can't just say, well, that's them. No, we're part of a body. We're part of a community. You cut off your hand and it's going to hurt. I think. Is that, would that hurt us, Ar? I think so. Right? And you sever somebody in the congregation, it's going to hurt us all. So don't forget, as people, don't forget that you are part of a covenant community. But you know what? I, I want to push this application just one, one step further. I know my time is late, but I want to push it one step further. There are many of you out here, praise the Lord, that divorce is like not an option for you. It's like, no way will we be divorced. God says He hates it. We're not going to do that for sure. It resonates in your head that God hates divorce. You're not going to do it. You'd never break the bond of unity. And yet, there may be some of you experiencing marital difficulties and for years... That you might say, well, I never break the bond of matrimony, but you know what? You are bending it right now. And leaving it kind of bent in intention. You know your marriage isn't what it ought to be. You know that your marriage has fallen short of what the Lord wants, and sadly you become content. That's how it is. It's not, but it's okay. We're not getting divorced. <laughs> We're okay. 
Listen, the Lord has designed marriage for happiness and joy, and the Lord delights in happy marriages because they reflect Christ in the church. And, and followers of Christ are happy to be in the church. We are, we are thrilled to be the bride of Christ. And so also wives ought to be thrilled to be wives, and husbands ought to be thrilled to be husbands to show forth the great love of Jesus for us. So maybe you can take this third point and just say this. Not don't break the bond of matrimony, but change it. Build the bond of matrimony. Do what it takes to build up your marriage. Express your love to your spouse every day. Say it every day. I love you. Sacrificially serve your spouse every day. When you come home, when your husband goes, whatever, say, you know what, I prefer, I want to read this book or I want to do this on the computer. I want to do Put that aside and say, I want to serve my wife. I want to serve my husband. I want to love them. I want to do what I can. Be creative to think of ways to spend time together, right? Be friends with one another. Talk with one another. Pray with one another. Read scripture together. Have fun together. Purchase some kind of marriage book and learn some practical ways to put into practice. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, right? Think practically of how to do that. And my, my prayer is this. May the Lord see fit to raise up strong families at Rock Valley Bible Church where we would all model what godly marriages are all about. Well, don't break the bond of community. Don't make the bond of lawlessness. Don't break the bond of matrimony because your actions are felt by many. The reason for these admonitions is because fundamentally don't forget His people. Don't forget we're part of a body. Let's pray. Lord, I pray You simply strengthen us and help us in these things. Give us, give us strong marriages. Give us marriages where You are our King and Christ is Lord. Your Word is read. Prayers are prayed. Hymns are sung. Love is expressed. All serve. Um, Lord, I pray You give those things for our good. I'm asking, Lord, for our good because I know of how the blessing those things will bring. Do that in among us, we plead in Christ's name. Amen.